Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm one of your co-hosts, Sami Siddiqui. Today, I'm speaking to Professor Jessica Namakal about her wonderful new book, Unsettling Utopia, The Making and Unmaking of French India, published by Columbia University Press earlier this year. Dr. Namakal is Associate Professor of the Practice of International Comparative Studies at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina. Welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies, Dr. Namakal. So our first question is always biographical. Where did you grow up and how did you become interested in the history of French India? Um, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this podcast. Um, I grew up in St. Paul, Minnesota, um, one of the Twin Cities. Um, my father is from, he grew up in Secunderabad, India, um, and his family, our fa- my family is Tamil, um, but sort of part of the uh, group of people that had, had moved to other parts of India um, for jobs. Um, so that's his background. And then my mother was from uh, Omaha, Nebraska, and they met in St. Paul, which is how I ended up uh, being from St. Paul, Minnesota. <laughs> um, so, so that's my background. You know, it's, it's interesting, the French India question, like part of it is um, sort of, co- you know, coincidence or just I kind of arrived there actually through studying European history, which um you know, I, in undergrad, I actually went to USC for film school and ended up um, with a history degree uh, and, and was really interested in colonialism and empire and hadn't, you know, I, I actually think it's worth telling this story because when I was at USC, um, you know, I had this Indian family. Uh, it was half of my family and we didn't live near them. Most of them lived actually in India or in Toronto or in New York, um, various places. So I didn't grow up with a lot of other South Asians. Um, around me. Uh, so, you know, I got to USC, I was doing a history degree. And I remember talking to the undergrad history advisor, and you're supposed to tell them what kind of classes you wanted to take. And I was like, Oh, I'd love to take an Indian history class. Like, Oh, we don't have one of those, but you should take British history. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it like didn't yeah. occur to me until years later how messed up that was. Um, yeah. 
But, you know, it, it actually says a lot about the field. Um, they actually mm-hmm. were hiring a South Asian just a few years ago. And I remembered, oh, did it take <laughs> 15 years or something? <laughs> but, um, you know, it, 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 it makes a lot of sense um, when you actually think about how the field was formed. And in some way, you know, there's some honesty to that, right? Especially if you're working on this period um, that you're coming at it through European records um, a lot of the time. So, of course, being versed in uh, the history of uh, the French Empire and the British Empire. And the Portuguese Empire, right, um, makes a lot of sense for trying to understand what was going on um, in this time period. So to some extent, it came through that. I went to University of Minnesota for my PhD um, and ended up working with uh, someone who's a French um, historian of the empire, Patricia Lorsan, who works on Algeria or, and other parts of the empire. Actually, has a book on Kenya. Um, so actually, she she sort of uh, said, you know, nobody's really worked on French India, and you already have this interest in South Asian history. So I worked with her and then uh, South Asianist Ajay Scaria um, together on this project. But I, you know, Pondicherry is something I'd grown up hearing about because my family had like gone there on vacation in the 1950s. Um, one of my dad's good friends, uh, a lovely person named Vikram, who might listen to this, um, had had connections to French India, and I think had. Um, uh, a relationship with somebody who lived there. So I would sort of heard about these sort of curiosity stories because it was the 1950s. So it was actually still French at the time. Um, so, you know, if you had family from uh, Tamil Nadu, um, people had, had, had some experience. So it was on my radar in that sense. Um, so it was actually really nice. It was a little bit of an accident, but on the, uh, in the same sense, you know, if I look at the big picture, maybe it wasn't. <laughs> Yeah. Wow. Fascinating. I had no idea about this sort of backstory. So that's, that's, that's really interesting. Um, and getting to uh, this project, you know, mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could tell us why you decided to write this particular book. You know, I also, um, I, I think it's, it's interesting, uh, the, I don't know, the journey, the journey I had, you know, this <laughs> my started as my dissertation. Um, so, you know, that, that's always, you know, you're, you're working on this. Um, it's, Very it's slowly, always, yes. Yeah, yeah, same. Um, you know, you're always answering to a lot of different people. And then, you know, I was working, I was working just on an area that I didn't, I wasn't working with anyone who really knew about French India. Because mm-hmm. there, there are so few people that actually um, do work on this area. There's a few more now than there used to be. So, you know, I had a, mm-hmm. a Indian historian and I had a, someone who worked on French empire, but it was, it, it always sort of felt like trying to find your relevance to some extent, which is why I end up really thinking about the margins. But it, it, it's actually funny how many French historians I meet, um, especially those who are like into yoga, honestly, who are like, <laughs> oh, I went to Pondicherry and I really wanted to do a project, but I just couldn't figure out what the project was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <Right>? yeah. <laughs> um, so I mean, I mean, I think I think there's a reason for that. Um, and and so I, I decided, you know, actually, it wasn't just French India, but just the histories of decolonization um, in India have been really focused on partition, you know, rightfully so in a lot of ways, um, but but not so much on sort of the other um, things that were happening around decolonization um, or what that sort of experience was like for people in all of these princely states um, and, you know, the Portuguese territories and the French territories. And, and um, so to, to me, it really found a home in, in thinking about border making um, and uh, and then also the sort of post-colonial spiritual prod- product projects. But that really, that part came from being there. Um, and when I first went to, Pon- you know, most of these records are in France and in England, largely in France, but um, I used all the, the British consulate records that were 
the people um, stationed in the French territories. So England, you know, British Library and the uh, uh, the um, Colonial Archive in Aix-en-Provence. But then I, I went to India. You know, I was like, I've got to go to Pondicherry and see what's going on. And I actually didn't know much about Oroville. Um, I'm sort of researching where to stay in, in Pondicherry and saw it and was like, oh, this is interesting. What is this? And decided to go there for a while um, and stay there. And then just kind of went and asked if I could look at their archives and like somehow convinced them to let me do that. Um, very, very kindly. So, um, and, and then I thought, oh, this is really interesting because nobody talks about Oroville, um, in relationship to French India. And I can talk about why that is, but there would be no obvious reason, I guess, for you to, to do that in the traditional ways of sort of understanding decolonization and, um, and, and uh, post-colonial nation making. So um, I, I, but I like saw some clear connections, you know, um, to the tourist industry through um, how the sort of economy worked in Pondicherry and thought that I really wanted to, to understand um, both the, the continuations of colonialism and what decolonization may have meant here. Great. Thank you. Um, and yeah, we'll get into some of those specifics hopefully later in some of the yeah. questions. Uh, and you know, before we get into the book, um, I was wondering if you could tell the listeners, you know, a little bit about French India, uh, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what territories constitute French India, what were uh, French-British relations like, anything that you think might be important, you know, because as you say, many people don't know mm-hmm. uh, a lot about French India, including those who, you know, study uh, Indian <laughs> history. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, I think that I'm a historian of, of really the late 19th and 20th centuries, but it's absolutely mm-hmm. true. You need, you need to understand sort of what the French were doing there. And, and, you know, the answer is kind of easy, which is the French were doing the same thing there as the British and the Dutch and the Danes. You know, everybody was doing the same thing, which was with creating trading uh, posts and um, setting up trade routes. Right. Um, and of course, India was such a, 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 a fertile place for that. I mean, in the 17th and into the 18th century, France really thought they may take control, majority control in South Asia. And, you know, what, what South Asianists usually know about French India is that Tipu Sultan, um, the tiger of Mysore, uh, you know, <laughs> sided with the French against the British, um, yeah, and that, that's sort of the famous story. And in fact, people living in Pondicherry today and, and, just, and people who are from Pondicherry see them, you know, some of them relate um, or consider themselves descendants of Tipu Sultan. Um, so, you know, to some extent, it has this uh, uh, nostalgic um, sort of revolutionary nostalgia for being anti-British. <laughs> Which, which is interesting, but you know the you know so they were trading, they were fighting, they were having proxy wars with the British, they were building forts and then uh, you know getting them raised by the British, um, and this all comes to a head. You know, it, it's interesting that um, the French Empire is really split into several different time periods, and the the French territories were actually part of the old colonies. Um, so you would think of the other ones as being Saint Domingue, which becomes Haiti. Um, in 1804 and the other um, Guadeloupe and Martinique um, and Reunion, some other places in the Indian Ocean, not Algeria, which is conquered, um, which is occupied by the French military in 1830, um, or Indochina, which happens in the late 19th century. So this is actually a much older um, territory for France. And for that reason, they actually, you know, there were people in Pondicherry who sent letters to the French Republican government during the revolution. And so there's actually like this, this tie in um, 
to French history in that sense. Um, and Kate Marsh, the um, unfortunately, who passed away a few years ago, uh, has has written extensively about these things. Um, so at, after 1814, uh, the British and the French sort of come to a final conclusion um, and say, okay, you can have these five territories. They had been fighting over territory before then. And they were five small, um, what they called comptoirs, which are trading posts. Um, so Chandanagar, which is by uh, just outside of Calcutta, and today is basically a suburb of Calcutta. Um, uh, Pondicherry, today Puducherry, uh, which is the always has been the headquarters of the French territories, and that's about 100 kilometers south of Chennai. Um, and then um, uh, Karakal is just south of Pondicherry, so they're the closest ones to each other. Mahe is over in uh, Kerala, and then Yanam is up in Andhra Pradesh. So, and in, in addition to those, those were the five administrative territories that actually had some land. Um, and then in addition to that, there were actually um, these little uh, warehouse areas where it was just, it's actually sort of like a special economic zone, honestly. Um, yeah, where the, the, it would just be a French owned warehouse and the French had sort of legal jurisdiction over that, that space. So the, the British are, you know, throughout the 19th century, this is, you know, they, it's often described in the British records as a headache. Um, you know, and especially because of, um, so Pondicherry, um, and you've seen the maps for this, is, is incredibly fractured, right? The, the borders. And actually, if anyone's listening to this, you can just look on Google Maps because you can actually still see, the, I just noticed this the other day, you can still see the, the borders because today they're the Union Territory of Pondicherry. So it's actually still administered um, differently than the, than the surrounding area of Tamil Nadu. Yeah, so you, so you can so yeah, you can actually see it um, today. But um, they're split up into these communes. So really, what you have is all these French enclaves that are enveloped um, by British India. And after 1947, they're um, they're surrounded by India. They're a French Indian enclave within India. Um, so French British relations, you know, a, a lot of it is um, it is about these pro- sort of these proxy wars. It's not happening on the ground until the late 19th, but really the early 20th century, when you start to have anti-colonial revolutionaries, and the big name is Sri Aurobindo here, but there are lots of Tamil revolutionaries and some others who also sought refuge um, in Pondicherry and in Chandanagar. Um, So it wasn't until that started happening when it seemed like, oh, the French are harboring anti-colonialists, and then the British got really concerned. Um, And they set up... um, they set up fences eventually. They set up um, sort of more customs agents, you know, and the, it's all framed around customs and about um, people smuggling goods, you know, and a lot of this was seditious literature and um, weapons and things like this. But also um, these people were, were finding legal jurisdiction um, safety. Um, that was that wasn't a, that sentence wasn't right, but uh, in the in the in the French Indian territories. So that, you know, that made the French British relations much more prickly. Um, but, you know, I'll say, you know, for the people who live there, the sort of on the ground thing, um, there is for French, for French Indians, for French Tamilians, and I'm just going to talk about Pondicherry here more so than the other four territories. Um, you know, the sense of being French actually is pretty uh, elevated for um, a good number of people beginning in the late 19th century because French grant, uh, sorry, France grants French citizenship to um, 
a section of people, you had to renounce, this was called um, a renunciation. You had to renounce um, your, uh, your civil code. This is actually um, when the French had made this law and it was meant to um, mostly apply to people in Algeria. They wanted settlers um, who were often Jewish um, and, uh, and um, sort of mixed uh, ethnicities from Southern Europe um, who were coming into Algeria to work. They wanted um, to sort of have them as a settler population against the, um, the indigenous populations, uh, uh, you know, who were mostly Muslim, not entirely, but mostly to try to set that apart. What they did was create these laws that you could become a French citizen if you renounced um, your sort of religious codes, right? So this meant if you were a Muslim, you had to say like, I will not obey um, Islamic law, right? Um, and it was mostly, this is this was a way of um, making sure that Muslims didn't become French citizens. Um, But what this meant in French India is that a lot of people who had actually, you know, this was not just in French India, this is widespread in India, people who are of lower caste or um, outcasted, um, you know, saw either conversion to Christianity, which happens to Catholicism in French India, but to Christianity throughout India, um, and or taking on this French citizenship as a way out of a caste hierarchy. Um, So you actually get a lot of populations um, who become French and, you know, that becomes a major part of their identity, right? Um, you know, in, in, and even though there is quite a bit of caste um, prejudice, that prejudice that keeps replicating in Pondicherry, they certainly were not free of it at all. And like, you know, the churches would be set up where there'd be like a dollar, they didn't use the word dollar, but, um, you know, they had a place for the lesser caste in the bag. It was still segregated because the Brahmin, Brahmins were still still doing it. Um, but but the but there became this real tradition of having a French identity in there for French citizens. So people learned French. Um, you know, sometimes they, that meant they got got to go to French schools. Um, they were educated in the church, maybe sometimes, right? So you so you get that much more than you get a sense of British identity, right? Especially in Tamil Nadu, <laughs> which like doesn't have um, you know it's not Delhi, it's not Calcutta, it's not Bombay, right? It's not these places that have these huge not huge, but um, significant British populations, right? Who are, and nobody, you know, nobody in British India is trying to, none of the British are trying to assimilate Indians in that sense. So, so you do get a sense, and this really comes down under um, the time of decolonization, you really get a sense that um, people that are French Indian feel much more connected to France than um, British Indians felt to England. Um, so, yeah. Thank you. No, that No, that really helps. And, you know, I mean, um, thank you for laying that out because I'm pretty sure most listeners uh, will not know uh, a lot about this history. So this is fascinating. And they can read, obviously, much more uh, about it in, in your book. Uh, Maybe I should, can I, I'm sorry to interrupt. I, should, I guess I should say one of the ground, um, the things to set out, though, is that as the timeline, right? So the French were there early and then they leave late, right? I think this is, a, you know, if the French agree to leave in 1954, um, which is when they, uh, after they have la- lost Indochina. Um, at Dien Bien Phu and when they're defeated there and then they don't ratify it um, they don't fully agree to it until they lose Algeria in 1962 so actually you know they, the administration goes more towards um, the Indian Union uh, after 54 and in 56 that's kind of a turning point but it hasn't fully been agreed to until 1962 so you know 1947 until 1962 
is a pretty long period of time um, from when India becomes independent to when uh, French India actually joins the, the Indian Union. So, yeah, I'm, gl- I'm glad you said that because one of the things you're, you know, one of the many things you're you're trying to do with this book is to talk about the messiness of decolonization, right? Mm-hmm. So it doesn't fit one sort of simple narrative. Um, there's there's a lot different things are happening in different times, um, yeah. and uh, that includes India um, and French India is one of those examples. Yeah. Um, so perhaps you could begin the discussion of the book itself by. Um, you breaking down the title and subtitle of the book. I hope that's not too boring of a question, but um, <laughs> I really liked your title, so I thought that would be a good place to start. So the title again for the listeners is Unsettling Utopia, and the subtitle is The Making and Unmaking of French India. Yeah, um, so the Unsettling Utopia um, comes from thinking about both the sort of utopian projects of Oroville and of France, right? That France um, really projects itself onto its colonized um, people as a as a as a utopia, um, and that there's some real unevenness to um, to how that that uh, plays out, but also to how it's even presented. But you, I mean, I think we all actually, or anyone who's sort of been in some sort of Western um, educational system has been taught about the, you know, utopian ideals of French republicanism, right? Even if it is just like the foundation of modernity is the French Revolution, right? Um, So, you know, this is, again, you know, people in French India, in in some sense, um, participated in the French Revolution, right? Um, So, you know, this idea that there's these utopias um, that can be achieved, um, sort of Oroville coming back into India shows um, just how impractical that is in a lot of ways or how colonial it is. So that's what the, you know, the unsettling part I, is gesturing towards um, wanting to do a history of decolonization in a in a space that isn't talked about as a settler colony. And I like to, you know, say again again India is not a settler colony I'm not I'm not claiming that it is but there are issues and I'm drawing on um, the work of indigenous uh, scholars and people in settler colonial studies that centering the question of land remains incredibly important so that's what the unsettling is about both sort of a um, an epistemological unsettling and also uh, unsettling in the sense that there are people appropriating land um, in the mode of, of settler colonialism. Okay, so that's the first part. And then the making and unmaking of French India, right? I mean, this is gesturing towards the idea that French India had to be made, right? And again, I'm, I'm really interested in borders and territories and how those are created and legal codes that sort of bring them into existence. But then also in how um, people on the ground also... Um, you know, I'm, I'm interested in, in the, um, the intersection of really material consequences <laughs> along with, um, you know, ideology. So, the, you know, the making is really what made French India. And then, you know, French India doesn't exist anymore, technically. But in practical material terms, it really does in some sense, right? Um, partly because the tourist industry uh, has really depends on this idea of a French India in Punisher, you know, from people just from India being curious, right? I think I call this like a feel good colonialism. Um, 
you know, it's like you, you could go and, you know, feel really bad at Amritsar or something like this, but you can also, um, you go and go, Oh, look, this is so quaint and interesting. And aren't the, aren't, aren't the French great. And they didn't like, there weren't, um, like the horrible atrocities of partition didn't happen here. Um, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, it, it, what that does is papers over on what has really happened, but it's also, I mean, I think it's more serious than that because it also has like continued, um, to engage these modes of French colonialism, um, into the contemporary period. So, um, you know, it's sort of a, um, you know, French India is unmade to some extent by French Indians moving to France <laughs> and then, um, you know, not um, sort of being as engaged in French India in the same way, but also um, it, it's uh, perpetuated in, in some other ways. So anyway, that's what the making and unmaking is about. Great. Um, and I think you've basically um, answered my next question, I think, which was, uh, but you can add to it uh, briefly if, if you think that's worth it. I was just going to ask you uh, yeah. why you decided to structure the book uh, the way you did, which was in two parts, making and unmaking, yeah. as you've already described, and how the narrative of the book unfolds. But I think you've mostly covered that question, but uh, you can add something to it if you, if you think. Well, I guess I'll say, you know, the first half of the book is um, really about the experience of colonialism in French India. So it's really devoted to um, the making of the borders, to understanding how um, you know people were affected by these borders, how Pondicherry became this anti-colonial refuge, what that meant for the city, and then also in there how the orbit, the Sri Aurobindo ashram, sort of became the center of um, center of well, center of attention, I'll say, in Pondicherry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, the reason I do this is I have yet to see somebody write a book about the history of this time period in Pondicherry where they bring together, um, well, I've never seen anyone involved, engage Oroville in this actually, but to talk mm-hmm. about sort of the political role that the ashram played, because it was actually quite significant. Um, and I, I, I get a little pushback by people who are part of the ashram on this, but um, <laughs> I'm, ha- I'm happy to talk about that. Um, but so that's the first part. And the second part is the unmaking is actually devoted to French Indians moving to France. Yeah. <laughs> um, in one chapter, and then the establishment of Oroville in 1968 um, to sort of say this is like in some ways an unraveling, but in another way, um, kind of a, a, a reimagining and rebuilding in a different way. Absolutely. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Thank you. I think that really helps, uh, I think, the listeners figure out what the book is doing and, um, you know, how the narrative unfolds. And hopefully they pick up the book and they can see it for themselves. Um, so I was wondering if you could read out a short excerpt from your introduction and expand on what you mean by it. Uh, to me, at least, uh, it seems to be summarizing one of the main arguments uh, of your book. Sure. Yeah. Thank you for, for choosing this passage. Um, okay, I shall read it. Unlike the ashram, which is an ascetic place devoted fully to the study of Aurobindo and the mother's philosophies, Oroville was envisioned as the, quote, first city of the future and a, quote, city of universal culture. Designed to resemble a galaxy, Oroville was meant to be a launching pad for the post-colonial future, a break from the colonial past. 
Unlike the residents of the ashram, the original inhabitants of Oroville came largely from Europe and Australia, making it truly a project guided by European interests, a way for the privileges of colonial mobility and wealth to continue into the post-colonial world in a movement I call settler utopianism. Oroville is proof that the French colonial mission in India transcends both the bounded territory of the French Indian possessions and the formal time of colonialism. Yeah, so um, with this, uh, what I'm trying to do um, is sort of what I was just suggesting is to bring together um, the history of Pondicherry with uh, its anti-colonial uh, sort of connections um, with the building of the ashram. And then with the Oroville, which again, wasn't established to 1968, isn't actually on French Indian territory, although some of it is now. Again, if you look at Google Maps right now, you will see that some of it actually goes into um, the Union territory of Pondicherry now. But so, you know, it's not, I mean, and I think the pushback, you know, to some, from some people are just like, this isn't even in French India, right? But there is no way it would be there, right, if French India hadn't existed. You know, so this is this is just something really important to think about. Um, and, and you know, also um, to think about when I say that people came largely from Europe and Australia and also North, North America, these are people um, who had really been taught that um, settler colonial journeys were ones to be celebrated. Right? They come from those traditions. They come from uh, sort of a narrative literary background, <laughs> you know, maybe not literary, but in the nationalist um, imagination a narrative where, um, you know, being a settler is being a brave pioneer, right? So it's, it's, it's a, it's coming from a place where, um, you know, not in Europe so much, but of course, all of their projects, <laughs> what they were doing in the empire, and then Australia, um, as a settler colony, and as a white dominion, much more clearly, um, and those coming from the US where, you know, th- there's no, there's no a critical thought um, about how they call themselves pioneers all the time, how they, you know, in all of the official language, they say when we got to um, the area, it was barren land, right? By saying that the the poor farm, the poor Tamil farmers couldn't take care of this land. And we like, you know, we bought it for the, from them, you know, and they just became laborers on the land, you know, which is text textbook actually. Um, and that, you know, they couldn't take care of it. We were better. We had modernity. We had technology. We reforested it, right? Like we saved the land from these people, which is just a settler colonial narrative, right? But I, th- I think I think people who um, undergo projects based on some desire for spiritual enlightenment get excused um, for their behavior all the time. Right. And I, and I think, you know, there's lots of works critiquing missionaries, right, because we have a long um, history of critiquing Christian missionaries now. Right. And thinking about them as tools of empire. But what about all of the, you know, postcolonial spiritualists? Right. Like, what do we what do we make for make about them? Um, so I call this settler utopianism to think about how they were sort of utopian desires and especially based around this real internationalist multicultural language of the time right that comes out of sort of the un and and orville's really into unesco um and and sort of working with them about how all of that just um you know completely submerges what's happening to people who live there and the fact that they just emerged from you know centuries of colonial rule mm-hmm. so. and I, I just realized uh, i should have probably done this earlier but um so for listeners who may not be aware what the 
Auroville is in relation to the ashram. I was wondering if you could just give a brief account of, you know, what makes them distinct and yeah. um, and and connected as well. Obviously, yeah. This is this is an important distinction, actually. So, I mean, that, so the ashram, um, the ashram was founded in 1926. Uh, Aurobindo came to Pondicherry through Chandranagar in 1910, um, and then the, we, I've just threw out the name the mother, but the mother is a French woman named Mira Alfasa. Um, and Alfasa comes to French India in 1914. And Sammy, I know you know about Alfasa, so feel free to chime in. Um, but she she comes to India in 1914 with her then husband, Paul Richard, um, who works for the French colonial um, project. Uh, and so they, they're, they're, they're stationed in that. And they were both interested in the occult in France. Um, you know, so it's not, this isn't new for them. They were quite eager to meet Aurobindo. They had, you know, he was, he was a really important anti-colonial figure, uh, Bengali anti-colonial figure before he, um, before he seeks refuge in Pondicherry. So he was really well known. Um, and he sort of makes this turn to, uh, to spiritualism, to, um, to an ascetic life. And the system of thought he develops is called integral yoga. And the mother and well, she wasn't the mother then, Mira Alfasa and her uh, her husband Paul are really really want to meet him. Are super interested in it. So when they come, there's no ashram, right? It's just Aurobindo um, and some of his um, followers that are living in this house. Um, so they have to leave because of the war. They go to Japan. They go to France. <laughs> they come back. Uh, they come back um, after the war. And you know, to make a very long story short, the mother stays for the rest of her life, and and Paul leaves. Right. Um, so she stays. She's become like the right hand of Orbindo. Um, they are spiritual partners. Right. Um, and in 1926, he decides he's going to go into full seclusion. Um, so he sort of leaves the running. They're getting more and more followers. Right. A lot are coming from Bengal. Um, they're interested in Orbindo. Um, some of them are, you know, are anti-colonial revolutionaries who are interested in this political thought. But more and more um, as he publishes more of his spiritual writings you get more of those people and then um people are really interested in the thought of the mother she's publishing all these tracks so you get a lot of french people um coming also so you get this sort of world of french and bengalis right <laughs> coming together in this space and it sort of formally becomes an ashram and once it does you know they they start a lot of different things there's a school um you know there's a printing press eventually they have their own post office you can go there um it's, it's like an it's a, like an india post office um uh, anyway, so so it becomes much more formal. And the mother, he, uh, Orbindo, christens her the mother in 1926. And then she, and she runs it. Um, so the, the ashram is always a space that is um, for spirit, people who are spiritual followers of the mother in Aurobindo. and And it remains so today, right? You, you only go there and live there. And, you know, it's the kind of life where you renounce your possessions and you like live in a sparse room, um, you know, and you commit your days to study of, of the works of, of these um, folks, which is true of a lot of ashrams. Um, now, Oroville is a very different project because Oroville was founded as basically an intentional community. It was meant to be a town, right? Um, so, you know, it, it's always, it was always meant to have lots of different industries. Um, you know, they saw it they saw it from the beginning as this multicultural town. You know, they said in the beginning they wanted 50,000 people to live there and it's never gotten above 3,000, I think is the number, maybe a little bit above 3,000. Um, 
you know, and this, this is related to land actually, but they had these grand divisions, right. And they were, they were envisioning, um, you know, you know, sort of those late 1960s visions of what a future world would look like with like monorails, you know, um, those kinds of futurist visions that were really common at the time. Um, you know, and they wanted to sort of make it both uh, loyal to what they saw as the spiritual foundation of India, right? And we can um, talk about what that may mean, but with you know all of the um, all of the comforts and technologies that you, like European Europe could bring to it, right? Um, so it was never, you know, you know, you don't have to. You're expected to, to sort of respect the mother. And Orbindo there, but it's you didn't have to spend your days um, in study of their thought, right? You could go because you were interested in these other sort of ideals, and th- those sort of evolve over time. Um, you know, so it's it's much like in some ways a lot of the communes and intentional communities built during this time period. You know, some people like to point out that it's lasted, right? Because most of these folded. You know, whether they were a Jonestown, which ends in tragedy. Or, um, you know, a lot of the California communes, which just, you know, didn't have the power to keep on. Um, And there's reasons they've been successful. And maybe I can talk about that later. But, um, but it's, uh, but, you know, and and, and after 1980, (laughs) I won't get into this um, too much, but there was actually a very big split between the ashram and Oroville. Um, So there's not always a lot of um, happy thought about one or the other between them. You know, I think the the ashram people thought saw Oravillians as like pretty silly. You know, they weren't they weren't serious. They were just you know there to party um, and have a good time. You know, the mother always said she didn't like hippies. You know, she was like Oroville's not a Oroville's not a place to come and do drugs and drink. And there's actually you're not supposed to do drugs or drink there, but I guarantee you that happens. Um, <laughs> But, you know, you can't, there's no beer for sale, sale in any of those stores or anything like that. Um, but she, you know, she was very clear, like, we don't want homeless hippies here. <laughs> you know, this is not what this is about. So, like, those people, you know, plenty of those people come, of course, by homeless. You know, we're talking about, you know, uh, people from Europe who have decided not to have jobs and things like that. But <laughs> um, anyway. Anyway, I've gone on at length about that. No, no, that's perfect. Thank you. That's that. I think that's really helpful. And I should have sort of made that clear earlier uh, with a question. So thank you. And and your book also has some great stuff about how uh, the gender dynamics of you know Orobindo um, uh, and the mother mm-hmm. and and uh, um, all sorts of other stuff that you know um, listeners will um, can read if they if they get the book. Um, okay, so. My next question, I think you've addressed this a little bit already, but I think it might give you an opportunity to expand on it. So mm-hmm. you make the point several times that while India was not a settler colony, it was the site of various colonial settlements. Uh, this included spiritual settlements like Oroville, as you've described earlier, settlements that, quote, worked slash works to disavow the culture, language, and lives of local populations while simultaneously making claims to belong to the land. In, in and near... Pondicherry, the Aurobindo Ashram, and Oroville serve as examples of how liberal discourse rooted in multiculturalism, spirituality, equality, and utopianism has displaced local Tamil populations from uh, land and history, time and space, end quote. I was wondering if you could uh, expand on this point and tell us the significance uh, of these settlements to the history of colonial and post-colonial India. Yeah, I mean, I think there's uh, work to be done here on um, what happens in other areas. You know, of course, a lot of the ashrams um, 
that became really famous, like the one the Beatles went to, right, and, and Rishikesh. Um, there's probably um, a lot to say about these kinds of connections. And actually, you know, the Rajneeshis who um, start in North India and end up in Oregon um, have, have sort of similar origin stories in some way. And actually, these people are all, all sort of connected, these gurus. So that's one thing. And I, I, I guess I can't, I, I think there's interesting links there, but I haven't done the work to do that, and I, I, um, to see what they are. And I'd, I'd love to know that's a little bit of what my next project deals with. Um, but, you know, I'll maybe to clarify this or to give it a little more um, context, why I think this is so important to understanding um, what has happened in, in French India is that, you know, to some extent, the ashram and uh, Oroville are, are really what bring attention to this part of India, right? Um, again, there are a lot of, especially Indian tourists who go to Pondicherry because it's on the beach, you know, especially if you live in um, Chennai, right? <laughs> it's on the beach. It's, you know, they, they actually have... Um, more liberal tax laws around alcohol. They have like imported alcohol from France. You know, it's like, it's a good place to, to go, especially Tamil Nadu used to be a dry state. Um, so there was, there's a lot of pe- reason people do tourism in Pondicherry. I'm not saying um, it's all about the ashram in Oroville, um, but there's been a lot of actually positive attention on both of those places that never take into account local politics um, or the history of the space. And I think we've seen that more and more clearly recently. Right. And, and, you know, this and through the book, I I point, you know, I I show, I hope um, that this is rooted in a a long term uh, marginalization of French India. Right. That it was just treated as um, a place that didn't have much importance. Right. Um, That these populations you should be kind of suspicious of, especially if they chose to remain French after um, after 1962. Right that um that you know you were kind of not a real french national and you weren't because of your race and you were not a real indian national because you had chosen to be french right um and it 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 really whitewashes all the complexities um of the history and politics of 20th century french india um and i I, you know just to plug um some other work on this the french indian novelist ari gautier um writes novels about this time period in French India. One is now in English translation called The the Tanai, um, and it's available um, in, in, in India, at least, I think. But but this is like, his his work is the first like real popular literature that actually goes into the complexities of living in French India, right? Um, it's just not, nobody paid any attention, nobody gave any voice to it, nobody highlighted it really in any Anyway, and instead it gets um, what gets attention is like Oroville is so amazing. Look how multicultural it is. You know, look at how spiritually evolved it is. Um, you know, and nothing about the massive numbers of people who are displaced from their lands, or even you know how um, people that had fought for sort of on the Indian side for independence, right? That uh, French India should join India, how they're actually treated pretty badly <laughs> um, afterwards, right? And, and people just become sort of landless and nationless and they're just kind of drifting and they become kind of curiosity of the past. Well, Oroville is really seen as this, like, this is what's next. You know, this is what, this is what we should be focusing on. You know, but if you look at the ashram and the ashram liked to say over and over again, we we're not political. We're not taking any political positions. 
right? And this is, you know, people like to give me pushback on this. Um, and, you know, it, it's just impossible to disagree with that statement. And I'll tell you what. <laughs> I mean, the ashram, um, there are, you know, not only is the mother a French national and the government there is French, right? But her brother was the colonial governor of French Congo, right? So she has these deep ties uh, to power in the empire. Um, you know, all of the ter- all of the governor generals of Pondicherry um, were close with the ashram, right? So local people um, often, you know, not everybody, but largely local people didn't trust the ashram. They bought all the property for a long time. They were the only people in town with a car, right? Um, they had all of the best property. They were like creating a school system and they often didn't let local people be involved too. I mean, it's changed over the years, but initially, you know, this was mostly French people and Bengali people. So while you have all, and I go into the group uh, in the book about all the different sort of political groups and positions, right? Like the ashram was always in a place of privilege. They were never, they were being protected by the French state. Like the French state liked being there, liked them being there because whether or not they believed it, um, they were working with the French state, <laughs> right? Um, so whether or not they're going to take a position, of course, it's it's political, Right. But again, it's privileged over local histories in just about every telling of things. Um, but so I try what I try to do is bring them together and say, like, these people, these pl- people are I mean, it's there at the same time. You know, they're, they have to negotiate with, with each other. So, mm-hmm. you know, what did what kind of what did that mean? Yeah, I really I thought that was such an important part of the book was how uh, you talked about what um, the impression or the sort of attitude towards uh, Oroville and the ashram, um, you know, local population had, local Tamils had, and the sort mm-hmm. of local sort of both, you know, uh, regular people, but also sort of political figures. Uh, and I thought that was really like a fascinating part of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so thank you for that. Um, now, something I noticed in your book was the use of intimate language to talk about colonialism. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for instance, you talk about the quote, sexual not created by empire at one point. Um, and there's other examples. Um, if I'm not mistaken, this seems to be related to what you describe as the, quote, impossible messiness of colonial rule, end quote. Um, I was wondering if you could discuss what you mean by this and you know why dis- you decided to use uh, the language of intimacy to talk about the messiness of colonialism. Yeah, I mean, I think this is... Um... This is at the root of why it's so hard um, to decolonize in a lot of senses, right? And it's because, especially in um, places in India where you have, or, you know, maybe not in India, but in French India, where you had a pretty small population of um, of Europeans there, right? Um, and mostly sort of local people, but you get even more sort of inter- for I don't love the term interracial mixing, actually, but I'm going to use it, I guess. Um, you know, you have interracial couples and things like this. You know, what these what do, what do you do after empire ends, right? Um, and and you know, the reason I say this, and I think you know, I, I thought about this to a certain extent in, in um, what the wider context of India is that you know the sort of nativism that comes out of um, out of the independence movements really works to disaggregate any sort of mixed community, right? So, you know, the Anglo-Indians are like a, a political group. They have a, they have, they're part of the quotas, right? They have their own, um, 
they have their own position in Indian politics, but that becomes really codified as an identity. And there's a lot of other mixing that's going on that's not Anglo-Indian, right? Um, so, it, and, you know, Anglo-Indians are, all, you know, historically very conservative, uh, politically, um, sort of all these other things. Um, but they get they get sort of placed in this category and you go, okay, there you go. You've got the Anglo-Indians and everyone else is sort of an Indian, right? Um, except, of course, anyway, partition. But anyway, that's, that's neither here nor there. Um, so, you know, Franz Fanon, the, uh, the theorist and writer, the French theorist and writer, Martinetian theorist and writer, um, says in the direction of the earth that the colonial world is a bifurcated world, right? That the colonial world, in order to recreate its institutions, relies on binaries, that you need to have clear-cut categories to be able to put people into them. And this is incredibly true we know through you know the works on enumeration and the census and all of um, what we know about uh, british india right um right that it is really important for colonial role in order to uh, identify people right um but you know the minute you start looking at sexuality every everything gets really mixed mixed up right it's messy because families are messy right so if you if you like move your attention away from you know on the heteronormative nuclear family is not an indian idea it's not a south asian idea it's a it's a western idea so that even if we're just talking about blended families right other ways that people um you know lived with large families and big houses and um all kinds of different um ways of living in india that um you know, this is impossible messiness of colonial rule is it's really hard to just untie that when, you know, some diplomatic process says, okay, you're not French anymore, right? And I think you see this especially in French India, because this this question of race and nation um, and citizenship is really, really um, confusing to the French when they see all of these French Indians. <laughs> Right. Um, or, you know, the, the French Indians who have spent, uh, you know, at least two or three generations uh, really identifying as French and then moving to France. I mean, like, oh, nobody thinks I'm French. Right. They keep saying, what are you doing here? Right. So it's like, oh, French equals white. I didn't you know, I actually didn't know that because they not this. So but it has to do with uh, reproduction and it has to do with race. Right. And it has to do with ethnicity. Um, so all of this, I think, you know, centers on sex and reproduction in a lot of ways. And so it, it's, it's, it's important to sort of understand that through family and intimacy. Great. Thank you. That's super helpful. Um, and I think you've already, you've answered, uh, my next question on decolonization mm -hmm. through this and various other answers. So I'll skip that one and go to the next question. Um, so going back to, uh, you know, French colonial rule in India specifically. Um, I was wondering how, if you could talk about how French rule in India was um, and is seen in France uh, and India. Um, you know, you describe a Francophilia among both Indian revolutionaries like Madame Kama or uh, Indian nationalist leaders like Nehru and Gandhi, and even today, the images that you've already described. So I was wondering if you could just briefly tell us how um, French rule in India is seen in uh, in India as well as France today. Yeah, yeah. So I think in India, you know, I, today again, I think it's it's largely around this sort of feel good, feel good tourism, <laughs> colonialism. Mm -hmm. It's the colonialism mm -hmm. we don't because even Goa, I think people feel a little worse about. I mean, again, everyone wants to go to Goa. It's got the beaches. 
Mm-hmm. But Portuguese, you know, the, the Portuguese rule in India did not come to sort of the gentle end that France claims um, it did. And it was because Portugal was under a dictatorship. They, India had to send in the army, the military um, to, to end that. So France is really, you know, Indian government at the time worked really hard uh, to negotiate with France to the detriment of people who lived in French India, I argue. Um, but, you, you know, early, and this is why I talk about Nehru and Gandhi, you know, Gandhi issues um, like a pamphlet in Tamil um, in 1947. Actually, I have it on my wall. So I have the date. Um, the 11, uh, it's, uh, it's the 18th of November, 1947. Um, he issues the statement that basically says, uh, don't worry, French Indians. I'm paraphrasing. Of course. <laughs> um, don't worry. You know, we're, we're negotiating. We're going to take care of this with the French, just be patient. But earlier, you know, before 1947, uh, Gandhi had had gone to Pondicherry um, sort of on his tours, anti-colonial tours, and said, you know, you here in French India are being ruled by a much better power. You know, that power, they always invoke the French Revolution. Right. So there is like a complete and utter belief that the French Revolution was this really liberatory revolutionary period. Um, you know, of course, uh, I guess they didn't hear of or read about Haiti at any point. Um, you know, if we if we think about it and back, but it really, you know, France really capitalized on this. They knew it. Like in the in the um, diplomatic reports I read, you know, they, after 1947, they would say we don't have to hurry up here because you know India likes us. India wants to negotiate with us. India understands how good we are, right? And they needed India. You know, think about how great it is for France to be able to be like the partner with post-colonial India because they're, you know, India has an anti-British, you know, basis to their to their independence, to their nationalism. So how great for France, you know, one of England's greatest inter- like uh, close rivals to say, "Oh, we're going to we're going to now sort of take over um, in diplomatic relations with India." So that was really important um, to them. You know, in France, yeah, you know, and there I talk about, you know, people in France, um, and again, I mentioned Kate Marsh earlier, but her work um, really gets into this. Um, people in, you know, in France have a real um, attachment to India <laughs> in terms of mostly Hindu, you know, quote unquote, Hindu culture. Um, and, you know, movies and all of that stuff. So, you know, it's, it's, um, it's like pretty Orientalist. Um, but it means that when Indians are in France, you know, people are like pretty interested in them. Right. It's not, it's not the sort of race. Well, you know, it probably was, I mean, I it definitely was for some people, but it's not what Fanon describes in say black skin, white masks. Right. It's certainly not the black experience in France. Right. Um, the people are like, India is unique. It has this ancient culture. Again, it's it's sort of all the Orientalist trappings that I think we're we're used to. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you. Um, and I think this might be related, but, you know, I'll let you, um, you know, uh, yeah. tell us if it is or not. But um, you describe uh, or you introduced this concept, anti-colonial colonialism, which I really liked. Um, I was wondering if you could just tell the listeners uh, what you mean by this and how the mother and Oroville um, fit into this idea. Uh, yes. Colonialism is in the eye of the beholder. I was actually, uh, this morning, I was teaching um, Woodrow Wilson's 14 points in my decolonization class. 
And you know, in that it's it's I I'm making this connection because in that you know he ends with Jarvis and the American president writes this at the end of World War One, and at the end of it he says like. Americans find imperialism really distasteful. We all need to stand against the imperialists. And it, you know, it's like, who do you think you are, <laughs> right? It's it's really amazing. So, I mean, it's not actually that unique of a phenomena. Um, you know, this is exactly where some of these uh, humanitarian humanitarian liberalism, which I think explains Oroville pretty well, actually um, comes into things. So, you know, the mother. You know, she goes and she she becomes the um, she becomes the number one, like at the side of Sri Aurobindo, a noted anti-colonial revolutionary. Right. Of course, they were for the independence of India. But don't ask them about French India. Right? I mean, that, neither of them were ever advocating to keep French India French, but they sort of wouldn't comment on it. And they were like, the, the states will work it out. And she said over and over again, I'm like proud to be French. French culture is amazing. I'm going to keep speaking French, right? Um, so this is, you know, she can claim to be anti-colonial, but she's also engaging in colonial practices, right? Of um, sort of negotiating with these governments, of, of sort of reproducing certain institutions. Um, and if you were anti-French Indian colonialism, you know, you couldn't say the mother was your comrade. So. And I think, or, you know, I don't know, I, I haven't asked people on an individual level in Oroville, but, you know, you get the sense that people really thought they were engaging in an anti-colonial sort of project by going to live in India, right? Like, um, I'm not going to sit here on my throne in France and, and live like this first world life. I'm going to like go work to make the world better by, by, by going to India. And we know how that works out in other <laughs> development projects, but Similar. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that, you know, that concept is, as you say, can be used uh, in other contexts as well, which is why I thought it was so, so helpful that it wasn't just about France, but something that you could uh, think with or use in other contexts, mm -hmm. uh, you know, whether it relates to the US or Japan or yeah. uh, any oh, other yeah. um, sort of empire. Um, so, uh, you know, you've talked about how, you know, Oroville and uh, French India was, um, or French India was uh, understood or, and, or is understood in France. You also, in uh, I think in chapter five, uh, you mm -hmm. begin with the description of a, doc a French documentary um, in Pondicherry, I think mm -hmm. that uh, and that goes to the to Oroville. And uh, I don't know if I can't remember if it was in the book, but it definitely in the, one of the book talks you gave. You talk about the a Netflix documentary that just yeah. came out. So, yeah. so I was wondering if you could just talk about how Oroville is discussed uh, in the media, both francophone, Anglo. Uh, I'm not sure if there's any Indian uh, documentaries that you've looked at as well. But I was wondering if you could talk about how they talk about Oroville versus how the reality on the ground looks like. Yeah, I mean, this is a big question. Right now. So the BuzzFeed documentary was actually BuzzFeed India. So that actually is that actually is an, and it was by um, a journalist from uh, from Bombay. And I'm looking in here to try to remember her name. But um, uh, that came out maybe in 2018, 2019, something like that. Um, and it was actually, I'm sorry, I should have prepped this, but um, it was called Finding Utopia or something like that. It had utopia in the title. Um, and when it came out, I was sort of blown away because she goes in and she says, you know, I'm a little suspicious of this. Is this a cult? Right. Is this just a bunch of Orientalist white people? And she sort of leaves being like, no, this is amazing. This is what India should be doing. 
And that's actually the part that really floored me. And again, my my historical research only really goes through the death of the mother in the early 1970s. So I haven't done, you know, like archival research uh, or ethnography on more current times. So I don't, I can't make really qualitative sort of statements about this. Um, but I can tell you that Oroville, you know, is successful because it is a, a closed community <laughs> with a lot of wealth. And a lot of that wealth is coming from other parts of India, from wealthier cities. You know, so you have a lot of people from Delhi and Calcutta and Bombay coming to start these like garment, you know, these fashion houses. They start um, basically various cottage industries and they employ all the local people. Right. Um, so, you know, why does India have climate change issues? Why does India have, you know, sewage issues? Why aren't there enough toilets for people? All of these questions. Well, it's like, I don't know if the answer is Oroville, right, which dispossessed everybody from their land and now uses them as laborers. Right. So, I mean, it's and, and it's, it's interesting because people she interviewed in that documentary straight like there were people who had come i think from australia um yeah yeah did you, did you see it you know yeah just, yeah talking about the machete fight with some locals yeah. when they first came and she just and does not question it at care. all and he says yeah we were we were racist we were racist <laughs> and like okay you know so what what they're describing is exactly what orville sort of wants you know which is to be seen as this the way I like to think about it, and I think um, makes the most sense from its origin point in 1968, is that in, uh, Oroville uh, likes to pretend it's not in India unless it's using its claims to the spiritual foundation of India to justify its existence. Right. So their whole thing is like, it doesn't feel like you're in India. Right. And it's like, well, that might be a problem, actually. Right. <laughs> because it turns out you're in India. So, you know, I have this document from 1973 I was just looking at, which is a report, um, like a pamphlet actually put out by Oroville that just says, like, due to the bad attitudes of the people who live here, we're having trouble, like, acquiring more land, and we've asked the government to help us acquire it, right? So that's early. That's 1973 that they're already saying, like, people are pushing back. So this idea that there's no one's there and there's no resistance is not only false, but it's something they admitted from the beginning. Right. Um, sorry, I'm getting uh, angry about this fairly, but uh, but but I, but <laughs> but it's because you know so that and then I I have to admit so all the PR right now is around Akash Kapoor's um, memoir and Akash Kapoor grew up in Oroville um, and he has this new memoir called Better to Have Gone and then there's Utopia in the title I haven't actually read it. Um, uh, I guess I should at some point, but I know his writings, he's actually in that documentary too. And he's, he's giving her a hard time about being hard on them. Um, oh, I, okay. That's who he was. Okay. okay that makes sense. But he's, you yeah. know, he went to Harvard. He's like, Ben, sorry, everyone um, at Harvard here. I'm, I'm sure it's great. Um, he, you know, he's been a writer for the New Yorker and the New York times. So he, he has a lot of um, uh, prominence in those circles. Right. But he grew up in Oroville came to the U.S. did all that stuff, has gone back to live there and with his wife, who's also from Oroville. And so that's what the book's about. Um, but, you know, from his other writings and from what I've heard about the book, he, you know, again, completely ignores local politics and people and history um, and just, you know, sees some problems with Oroville, but not because of any of the things that I have told you, right? Again, the title is called Better to Have Gone, right? So it's glorifying, once again, this settler narrative 
right? Um, of thinking like, what does it take to, to create um, a township devoted to equality? Well, I can guarantee you equality has not been achieved there. Like you can talk to anyone who lives outside of Oroville and tell you about that, mm-hmm. right? Like that's not, that's not hard to see. Something that um, I think you just mentioned that, uh, you know, um, you've kind of hinted at, but I I just thought was really important and fascinating is that one of the things that you mentioned in, I think, one of the earlier questions was Mm -hmm. the idea of looking at both the material as well as the ideological. And something that, um, as you were just answering that question, it made me remember this point is that on the one hand, India is the spiritual sort of like an abstract spirituality that even if you're not Indian, like the mother can be. Mm-hmm. versus uh, the Indians that live on the ground, uh, you know, actual Indians, oftentimes poor Indians. Yeah. Um, and so Oroville is kind of, you take on the spirituality, the abstract Indianness without the messiness of the local yeah. people. Again, the, the, again, it's a difference between sort of the clarity and the messiness, right? It's like, if you think about what that spiritual India is, it's first of all, a, a, Hindu, a Hindu India, Absolutely. Like, who is the Indian government threatening with not being Indian now? They're threatening uh, Muslims, right? They're, they're threatening the Rohingya. They're threat, you know, they're taking away citizenship through the Citizenship Act. Um, the, yeah. Anyway, um, of the last few years. So there's all of these rampant threats. And then, of course, um, low caste are um, people, you know, Dalit peoples who, you know, if you think again about how the fetishism around the spiritualness of India revolves around a certain idea of a Hindu India, that is absolutely doesn't include the lives or politics of Dalit peoples, right? Dalit peoples who often actually found some sort of liberation through French citizenship, right? That is, and, and, you know, if they tried to take it to France, it didn't really work. Although, you know, some found it better than, than being in India. Right. But, it, you know, to erase all of those politics. Right. Because you feel like you can, um, you know, commune with the ground in India somehow. You know, that's just there's a material consequence to people being able to do that while other people are getting their citizenship taken away. Like this isn't even, you know, we haven't even related this to the politics of Tamil Nadu as being, you know, an area in the south that has also been subject to sort of Hindi, Hindi language laws. Um, and all kinds of other things. And Samathi Ramasamy's work on um, the Tamil language, Passions of the Tongue, is great on that. Um, but, you know, that like all of these things are going on. And yet, you know, Orville is sort of this. And the mother always said, like, I'm French, but spiritually I'm Indian. Okay. You know, like, I'm sure all the Muslims being um, dispossessed and stripped of their citizenship who have been Indian for, you know, however so long, also feel like they could be Indian. But... They're not like some white woman from France. So yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> thank you so much. This is, you know, I, I feel like I've got, I could ask you like ten more questions, but I will try to <laughs> limit it so that you know we have it's not the podcast isn't wait too long. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, but I think you've already mentioned some of the interesting sort of uh, feedback or reaction you've had yeah. on social media by Aurevillians, uh to your book. Um, so I was wondering before you know we end the discussion, you could, if you could talk about um, what reaction you've gotten. Yeah, uh, I don't even know if it's Oroville. Like I, I don't totally know if it's people in Oroville. Um, okay. But but people who have relationships to the ashram in Oroville. Um, and this is, I did a um, this Brown History podcast recently, and um, there was some conversation on there instagram that i i spent too much time engaging with honestly but um 
But, you know, the, the interesting thing about it, I mean, I people haven't read the book. They haven't, they don't really know what I'm doing, right? But actually, you know, I think it's really fascinating. So that um, podcast, which is great, everyone check it out, Brown History. Um, they, they, he, he chose a picture of the mother um, to, to advertise it. Um, and it's this really fascinating picture because it's taken from the early or mid 1950s. She's in the ashram. And she's uh, sitting in front of this giant flag of undivided India with the ashram symbol in the middle of it, right? And she kept that up the whole time, like throughout her lifetime. I don't know if it's still there today. That's actually a very interesting question. But you cannot for like a moment tell me that's not a political statement, right? Um, like she, not only is she actually in present French India at the time, and he just wrote French India um, as the title of it. And people got so mad. They were like, the French... The mother was not a colonialist. How dare you call this French? I'm just like, it is French India, actually, technically. And then, you know, it, it devolves into people sort of saying uh, what they do is quote to me the like Oroville state, their statements uh, that they made when they were formed, right? Like that this land is barren and we're bringing together all these people and it's an international community. And I'm just like, uh-huh. Yep. So that's what Oroville says about itself. <laughs> Right. Like maybe we should talk to some people who were affected by this. Right. But again, you know, and it's not just, you know, I'm not trying to, and this gets into our messiness question a little bit again, maybe like, I'm not trying to say this is just, you know, white people or hippies or anything like that. Right. In fact, you know, a lot of the, um, a lot of the industries in Oroville are run by Indians just from other parts of India. Right. Um, but you know, they're, they're, it it doesn't it doesn't matter so much, right? It's like a local dispossession is local dispossession. <laughs> we can look at uh, the United States to see how that works too. Um, so again, you know, my plea is for people to sort of understand complexity, and and you know, for people, it's just really common and it's big in India to not question the lives of spiritual figures, like to um, to do anything to sort of sully the idea of a saint. But as you and I both know. Mira Fossa came because of the empire. It's actually not a, not a disputable fact, right? So it's like, it doesn't, you know, to some extent, it doesn't matter what her intentions were because there's material consequences. And that's just what I keep trying to tell people. And it's not even, you know, that much of a judgment, well, maybe, whatever. We're all judgy in our own way, but um, a judgment call, you know, but it's it's a, a sense of this is this is just kind of an indisputable fact. Agree with the analysis or not? But like French India existed, <laughs> and Oroville wouldn't exist if it hadn't been there. Like this was the idea of Oroville, but Oroville uh, dies in 1950, right? There's 18 years before Oroville's but so it is the mother who made Oroville. Like yeah, you know. So I, you know, that's what it is. That's what it is. <laughs> And and just on that very quickly, because I, I, just because I made a note of it, one of the many notes I made from your book was how you're talking about the uh, importance of um, Aurobindo as a sort of um, symbolic figure uh, with social capital that you know the mother uses, and um, so I thought that was really fascinating. And um, just one quick bonus question, if that's okay. Um, in your book talk, I remember again you talked about how Modi um, went to visit. Um, uh, Oroville, and I think he's. I think you mentioned something like he's only been to Pondicherry once, and of course, the, Oroville is just outside Pondicherry. Um, that 
and but he went straight there. So I was just wondering if uh, you could talk a little bit about that because I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, and I think he's been one more time since then. Um, so he went in 2018 uh, on February 28th, which is the uh, the anniversary. That was the 50th anniversary, the Golden Jubilee of the funding of Oroville. Um, yeah, and it was his first visit there as a prime minister probably ever, is my guess. Um, and so he goes to Oroville, he makes a speech. Um, it's really interesting, the speech really sort of mirrors the speeches. You know, Indira Gandhi was there in the 1970s. Um, it just sort of um, echoes. I actually, I have it pulled up on my screen here um, so I can say a little bit about what he said. Okay, so here, Modi goes during the Golden Jubilee. Um, he really uh, celebrates Oroville. Um, and he says, quote, for ages, India has been a spiritual destination for the world. Right? And says that Oroville is doing the work to carry forth this mission. Um, and he says, he goes on to list the five guiding principles of Oroville as written by the mother and shows how they reflect the quote unquote ancient principles of Hinduism. Right. Um, so this is like, it, it fits in incredibly well to his program of elevating India to have, you know, what he has is a lot of Westerners supporting his Hindu nationalist agenda, whether by intention or not. Right. For all the reasons I sort of said, which is when you have this glorification of a certain view of Hindu Hinduism, it's an exclusionary casteist version of Hinduism, right? And that works really well for Modi. Um, so he, you know, he tacks on a visit to Pondicherry after that. So finally, <laughs> no more bonus questions. Okay. Um, so I've taken so much of your time, but uh, before I let you leave, could you tell us about what you're working on now? Yeah, I have two different projects I'm trying to start. One is, you know, um, as we talked about earlier, thinking about sort of other ashrams and spiritual sediments. I'm also interested and how these travel around the world. Um, so I'm kind of thinking about it in terms of decolonizing cults. <laughs> um, you know, I don't always think cult is the right word, but they, but it's it's taken up that word, right, um, in a lot of senses. So I'm also interested in how these spiritual communities are read um, in different places. Um, so I'm looking, um, there's a, there's a group that was in Queens, um, Sri Chinmoy. I don't know if you've heard of him before. He has a series of restaurants. He, he passed away a while ago. Um, but he, he like, he was actually, uh, an in, they use the word inmate at the ashram. I, I know that sounds weird, but, uh, he, he lived at the Aurobindo ashram. I mean, he actually got kicked out for like being a narcissist. <laughs> around independence and he goes to Queens and he starts this, you know, cult more or less. Um, I think we can call it a cult. Uh, and it's really interesting there in Queens. It's almost, it's all, it doesn't involve Indians. It's almost all white people. Um, and they, there's a lot of interesting things about it. Santana was in it for a while. Yeah. But, um, this one hasn't been looked at very much, but, um, but what they do, and this is what interests me, is that he has his followers infiltrate the UN, right? So they like all get jobs as secretaries at the UN, like uh, office secretaries, not secretaries of the UN, um, right? And um, sort of creates himself as this great figure of peace. Again, it's it's building on this idea of like India, Indians being you know the magical Indian full of spiritual goodness um but there you can find statues of him globally 
um, that he basically had this propaganda campaign through all of these people he put in the UN. And he, he used to lead this like yoga day, um, like once a month in the UN where everybody meditated and did yoga. <laughs> anyway, um, so groups like that um, try to sort of bring together. And I'm also I'm starting to work on more of a, um, to get into the sort of the intimacy and the messiness um, that I talk about um a look at um, sort of how uh, women um, of different backgrounds moved throughout the world using my um, my family as a case study. So sort of a fa- family history. So my grandmother was born in Tanjore, um, and then um, my uh, maternal grandmother in Nebraska. Um, so I'm hoping to sort of um, bring those worlds together somehow. Wow. Both those projects sound fascinating. Uh, I'd love to read uh, them when they're done. But uh, thank you so much, uh, Jessica. Is really, um, I'm really thankful that you gave us so much of your time. Thank you. And, uh, and uh, answered my bonus questions that I sneaked in. So thank you, thank you so reading, much. Thank you for reading the book. I truly thought no one was ever going to read a book about French. <laughs> so very grateful um, for the engagement. Yeah, and I'm. Sh- I really hope uh, loads of people pick up the book, and uh, I'm sure they will because it's 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 really great. Thank you. Well, well thank you.